Welcome to Mad Men Deconstructed. This is Season 1, Bonus Episode 2, Making the Pilot. We've by now recapped 13 episodes from Mad Men's first season. As you listen to this, I will be working on season 2. Those episodes are coming soon. But as interesting as the show is the story of its development, because Mad Men's journey to the screen was unconventional, unlikely. So in this bonus episode, I'm going to recount the making of the Mad Men pilot. The standard for artistry is in its ability to prompt our self-discovery. At its best, art gently leads us to moments of introspection. In July 2007, the television drama Mad Men premiered to 1.65 million viewers. The show had been pitched to multiple networks, including HBO and Showtime, but it was the upstart AMC that gave life to the idea of a 1960s period drama, with its president Ed Carroll stating, We took a bet that quality would win out over formulaic mass appeal. After seven seasons, 92 episodes, 16 Emmys, and widespread critical acclaim, it's safe to say the bet paid off. Matthew Weiner is a self-proclaimed perfectionist and an embodiment of the modern American artist. He studied literature, philosophy, and history at Wesleyan University in Connecticut before earning a master's in fine arts from the University of Southern California School of Cinema and Television. Weiner is fascinated with mid-century America. He grew up watching 1950s films with his parents. He extensively researched 50s and 60s culture while writing his scripts, drawing from the visual style of films like North by Northwest and shows like M.A.S.H. and Happy Days. Every aspect of Mad Men's production is influenced by historical context. The show's writers and designers read through shelves full of old newspapers and magazines to get the details right. Many narrative elements are cut from the show to maintain period correctness. The ladies' room script initially mentioned Bobby and Sally playing with an Etch-a-Sketch. The toy was cut when the writers found out the Etch-a-Sketch launched in late 1960. Even a few months makes a difference. During the filming of one scene, Weiner asked, In 1961, when you turn on the car, does the radio come on? And while Mad Men's 1960s setting distinguished it from other series of its time, it was Weiner's obsessive attention to detail that made the show convincing. Weiner was involved in every aspect of the show, from writing to costume design to music. He performed scenes with his directors to establish the tone of each episode. The end product is a show which feels creatively focused. I do not feel any guilt about saying that the show comes from my mind and that I'm a control freak. But neither Weiner's nor Mad Men's success was instant. In describing the beginning of his career, Weiner says, It was a dark time. Show business looked so impenetrable that I eventually stopped writing. In the late 1990s, he broke through as a writer for several sitcoms like Becker and The Naked Truth. In 1999, Weiner wrote a speculative screenplay chronicling a day's events at a Manhattan advertising agency. The script drew the attention of The Sopranos producer David Chase. Here was someone who had written a story about advertising in the 1960s, said Chase, and was looking at recent American history through that prism. Chase would eventually recruit Weiner to write for The Sopranos, while the pilot script was pitched to several major networks. Weiner's agents were hesitant. I finished the script and sent it to my agents, he says. They didn't read it for three or four months. I was advised not to send it anywhere because that was a time when there were big deals for comedy writers. 
Weiner was close to wrapping up his work on The Sopranos and tried several times to pitch the idea to HBO. Had David Chase been on board, Mad Men would likely be a different show. HBO was interested in producing Mad Men, but insisted that Chase be involved. Chase was focused on other projects, though, and Weiner began pitching Mad Men to other networks like FX and Showtime. FX tried to convince Weiner to shorten the show to 30 minutes, but a lesser-known network, AMC, approached Weiner with the idea of turning Mad Men into a feature show. Rob Sorcher had served as an executive at Cartoon Network, USA, and Fox Family Channel before moving to AMC. Sorcher found the network's programming uninspired. I'm working at this network, AMC, that has a collection of old movies. It's like a lesser TCM, and I'm supposed to turn it into something, he said. He pushed for a signature show like The Sopranos. If you have a signature show, then you won't be dropped. Let's go for quality. But AMC didn't have the budget to produce a Sopranos. Even after Mad Men was picked up for production, the show's $2.3 million per episode budget fell short of the $2.8 million average for hour-long dramas. The network eschewed experience to save money. Christina Wayne eventually took over as Mad Men's network executive. She was fascinated with Mad Men's similarities to the Richard Yates novel Revolutionary Road. Weiner's agents warned him against partnering with AMC. It's low status, no money, and they've never made a show before. You don't want to be their first one. Even Sorcher was skeptical. Every possible reason on paper why this should not work was cited. It's super slow, it's about advertising, everybody smokes, everybody's unlikable, and it's a period piece. AMC found few studio partners and eventually financed the show themselves. The pilot cost $3.3 million. It was AMC's big bet on original programming. The script that sat idle for eight years, one passed on by every major TV network, would begin filming in 2006. Director Alan Taylor, cinematographer Phil Abraham, and production designer Bob Shaw all followed Weiner from The Sopranos. We were a bunch of people who all knew each other, who were doing something that we really loved, Taylor said. The crew's familiarity was a key advantage. We were an incredibly well-oiled, versatile machine. We knew how we worked together. It was a great asset to the show. Costume designer Janie Bryant had previously worked on the HBO series Deadwood. Bryant was obsessed with classic movies from a young age. She notes Gone with the Wind, The Sound of Music, and The Wizard of Oz as inspirations. She studied design at Georgia State and even in France before finding a passion for costume design and television. Weiner interviewed Bryant and immediately hired her to design costumes for Mad Men. She's since been credited with inspiring the 2010's revival of 1960's fashion. David Carbonara had seen the Mad Men script years earlier. Weiner had shown him the story and asked him to come up with a few songs. When he heard Carbonara's music, Weiner thought it was perfect for Mad Men. So in 2006, five years after Carbonara first read the pilot, Weiner again reached out to him, and Carbonara began working on music for the show. The next step was casting. AMC had never cast for a pilot before and trusted Weiner's vision. Kim Misha and Beth Bowling served as Mad Men's casting directors, helping Weiner fill roles for the pilot. Weiner had two prevailing ideas about the show's cast. He wanted to cast American actors to play American people, and he wanted fresh, unknown faces. My theory was that The Sopranos casting was great because you didn't know who any of those people were. Principal among the cast was Don Draper. Weiner's stoic ad executive was difficult to envision in an era when TV shows preferred comedic everyman leads like James Gandolfini. AMC wanted Thomas Jane to play the part, but he refused. Comedian Rob Hubel auditioned, saying he had dreamed of working in advertising as a child. Peter Herman was also close to the part. 
But Weiner saw in John Hamm the embodiment of Don Draper. Hamm had moved to Los Angeles years earlier, spending his time waiting tables, acting in theater, and even dressing sets for softcore pornography. Hamm struggled to land a breakout role in Hollywood. I came in the Dawson's Creek era. It was all about tiny guys who looked like teenagers, and I haven't looked like a teenager ever. So I was like, auditioning to be their dads, at 25. Hamm set a deadline for himself, his 30th birthday. I gave myself five years. I said, if I can't get it going by the time I'm 30, I'm in the wrong place. And as soon as I said that, it's like I started working right away. He landed a role as a firefighter on the NBC drama Providence, then lesser roles in movies like Space Cowboys and We Were Soldiers. He had a recurring character in the Lifetime drama The Division. But he was unknown to AMC when Weiner pushed to cast him as Don Draper. Landing the part of Don Draper was a torturous process. I auditioned about seven or eight times, and I was just thinking, God, at this point, I've pretty much read every single scene in the pilot to somebody. What do I have to do? Ham said. AMC invited him to New York, where Christina Wayne immediately knew he was the right actor. Ham jokes about the experience now. The AMC executives congratulated him in the elevator, but Ham remained unsure if he had won the part. Then Christina looked at me and goes, You know you got the job, right? And I go, No, I didn't know. Somebody needs to be way more explicit about that. Ham had been cast by the time John Slattery auditioned for the role of Don Draper. Slattery was known to the casting directors as a veteran of New York's stage theater scene. Weiner asked Slattery to read Don's part, then offered him a different role, Roger Sterling. Slattery was doubtful. I wasn't as emotionally invested because there wasn't much of Roger in evidence yet. I took it on faith, basically. Matt Weiner said it would be a great part, and it was. Weiner wanted someone boyish to portray Pete Campbell. The casting directors brought in actor Vincent Carthizer, an already experienced actor with parts in Untamed Heart, Little Big League, and The Indian in the Cupboard. Weiner was initially unconvinced. When he came in the first time in Los Angeles, he was under the weather with unwashed hair and a sweatshirt. Matt looked at me like, are you insane? I said, no, I promise, he's the guy. Carthizer was called in again and quickly won the role of Pete Campbell. Elizabeth Moss was the first woman to audition for the part of Peggy Olson. She was one of the most experienced actresses on the show, with previous credits as a child actress on the West Wing. Moss was just 23 when she showed up for her audition, but Weiner was instantly convinced that she could portray Peggy's humility and sincerity. She blew everyone away. That's always stuck with me, how amazing it is that the first person who came in to read Peggy ended up getting the role. January Jones also auditioned as Peggy. Jones had previous roles in films like Anger Management, American Wedding, and Love Actually. The casting directors had another character in mind for Jones, though, Betty Draper. I had always thought she should play Betty, because I saw her as this Grace Kelly type, super beautiful and super icy cold. But there weren't any scenes written for Betty at that time. Weiner wrote Betty's scenes over a few days, and Jones eventually accepted the part. Many of Mad Men's junior executives came to the show through luck. Rich Summer had auditioned 35 times that season. His wife vetted the Mad Men script and encouraged him to read for the show. Summer claims he called Weiner and Taylor by the wrong names during his audition for Mad Men. But another actor declined the role of Harry Crane, and Summer eventually got the call. They called me about two hours before the table read and said, Congrats, you got the part. Can you be here in two hours? And I said, Yep, I'm super unemployed. I'll be there. Michael Gladys intrigued Weiner and Taylor with his resemblance to Orson Welles. Mad Men eventually cast Gladys as Paul Kinsey. He's never named in the pilot, but the script referred to his character as Dick, a name Weiner would have to change when he wrote Don's background story.
Aaron Staten first auditioned as Pete Campbell. He got a call for a lesser, unnamed role and eventually became Ken Cosgrove. Aaron had four lines to audition with, and he became a series regular. That would never happen in today's world of television. Brian Batt would eventually play Sterling Cooper art director Salvatore Romano. Batt was set to vacation in Paris when he got the call for a Mad Men audition. He turned down the opportunity. It was the first time in my memory when I chose life over show business, said Batt. But Sal's part remained uncast when Batt returned from Paris. His agent called, he put on a blazer, auditioned for Weiner and Taylor, and got the part. That does not happen. With networks, you jump through hoops. But Matt had a clear vision, and the people paying the bills let him realize it. Christina Hendricks auditioned first as Peggy, then as Midge, then Joan. Joan's character was written for a guest star, but Weiner eventually developed a more significant role centered around Hendricks's on-set personality. Midge's part remained uncast until the last minute, when the show found actress Rosemary DeWitt. John Hamm suggested that Sarah Silverman read for Rachel Mencken, but Silverman declined. Actress Maggie Siff was enthralled with the Mad Men script. It felt so qualitatively different from anything. It almost felt like an art project. She initially responded to casting calls for Peggy Olson, but she decided to read for Rachel Mencken just hours before her audition. Mencken's casting was divisive, and Siff auditioned several times before winning the part. Having confidence about a role is a very rare thing and there was just something about the script and the character and my conviction about it that I've only ever felt a couple of times. I left every audition feeling like I might be the best person for the job. Not all of Mad Men's roles were breakouts, though. Kristen Schaal was cast as Nanette, a telephone operator on Sterling Cooper's switchboard. Nanette was intended as a series regular, and the casting directors were excited about her quirky personality. But her part wasn't picked up after the pilot. Schaal would eventually star in 30 Rock, The Last Man on Earth, and even Toy Story. With the cast assembled, Weiner began filming the Mad Men pilot over 10 days in 2006. He wanted to direct the episode, but AMC insisted he focus on being a showrunner. Weiner was involved in every aspect. He was literally standing next to Alan Taylor going, could you move it down more? He was so intimate with every piece of it. Many actors felt uncomfortable in their costumes. The trendiness of 1960s fashion was now their reality. I don't think I own one single suit, said Aaron Staten. Elizabeth Moss wore a wig to get her identifiable bangs. Rosemary DeWitt also wore a wig, uncomfortable about cutting her hair. John Slattery regularly complained about his suits being too tight. But even worse was Mad Men's pervasive smoking. Actors Michael Gladys, Rich Summer, and Aaron Staten wanted to smoke real cigarettes when shooting the pilot. By the time we got halfway through the shooting day, we were running outside as soon as they called cut, just to gasp and fill our lungs with fresh air, said Gladys. John Hamm and others smoked herbal cigarettes. I did not smoke real cigarettes. That's a rookie mistake. Creating period-authentic sets was another practical challenge for Mad Men's production. The pilot filmed at Silver Cup Studios and several locations throughout New York City. It opens at the Lennox Lounge in Harlem, constructed in 1939 with a classic Art Deco style. The blinds in Midge's apartment obscure buildings across the street. Midge's loft was only accessible through a tiny elevator, with little room for camera equipment. Many of the pilot shots pan over the facades of buildings to avoid shooting city streets filled with modern cars. The Sterling Cooper set was small and bare bones. These scenes were shot on an empty floor of an in-use office building. The building was under renovation while the pilot filmed, and workers even removed windows from Don's office during production. The location would be unavailable just six months after the pilot wrapped filming. Despite Mad Men's often uncomfortable dialogue, the cast developed an immediate camaraderie. 
Carthizer, Staten, and Bat met up at Michael Gladys' apartment the night before they filmed Pete's bachelor party. That was a crazy New York night. It helped ease the tension because we already had some experience ribbing each other and getting drunk together. We came in on Monday with exactly what Alan Taylor wanted. From the outset, director Alan Taylor preferred shooting John Hamm from the back. He felt that obscuring Don's face added to the mystery, that seeing Don's face wasn't necessary to get the impression of the man. AMC eventually used Don's silhouette in the show's opening credits and throughout its marketing. Ham was comfortable with the script after so many auditions. I knew all the scenes backwards and forwards. His final scene with Maggie Siff had been extensively auditioned. John and I discussed how much we had to audition to get that role. We were both nervous about that scene because it felt very significant. Don and Rachel's waiter was Taylor's assistant director for the pilot and on The Sopranos. The pilot's $3 million budget was stretched thin by the time Mad Men filmed its final scenes. Don's train ride to Ossining was constructed from one piece of glass and a black curtain background. We had to get very creative, said Ham, because we didn't have a lot of money or a lot of time. Filming wrapped and the cast waited for the show to be picked up. Christina Hendricks took a short break to work for a florist. Michael Gladys, Aaron Staten, and Rich Summer met up in New York City to play pool and listen to jazz. Staten read for a play with Elizabeth Moss. Nobody had seen the finished episode, and Mad Men's future as a series was still uncertain. Ham finally saw a draft of the pilot that summer. AMC would eventually land Lionsgate as a studio partner, and on August 11, 2006, they announced the first season of Mad Men, with production starting in LA. Many of the actors moved cross-country and found new apartments. Some had to re-audition, but most roles were kept, and Mad Men premiered to audiences on July 19, 2007. Not everyone saw what Mad Men would become. I didn't understand at the time the ambition that Matt had of where to go with the show, said director Alan Taylor. I think a lot of us thought it was a cool story set in a cool year and maybe every week we'll solve an advertising case. But later it became apparent that he was taking on the collapse of the American Empire and had some very big fish to fry. The pilot takes its name, Smoke Gets in Your Eyes, from a 1933 song by Jerome Kern. It's a testament to the power of artistic will and obsession. Perhaps my favorite quote about Mad Men's pilot comes from Phil Abraham, who said, We all did this as a passion project for Matt, and it became a passion project for us, because we all loved it. It's an unbelievable achievement. And with that, I'll conclude Mad Men's first season. Thank you all for your support. Now let's get started with season two. just wanted to make good on a promise I made in the previous bonus episode. I had a few listeners provide feedback on their favorite symbols and motifs from Mad Men Season 1. Johnny mentioned vices, including cigarettes, alcohol, and sex, and the consequences of those vices. And Travis mentioned the Nixon-Kennedy motif as a parallel for Don and Pete. I think these are both great. I want to encourage you guys to continue to stay engaged. You can contact me at madmendeconstructedpodcast at gmail.com or on social media. I want to ask you guys, what episodes from season two are you specifically looking forward to? Uh, What's your favorite episode from season two? And what are some of the things that really stand out to you about season two? Thanks, everyone. See you next episode.